You're listening to the Lean Six Sigma for Good podcast. We help you learn how Lean and Six Sigma concepts can be applied to nonprofits, NGOs, and not-for-profit organizations. Visit us at LeanSixSigmaForGood.com. Really appreciate, appreciate Carrie joining me today. And if you could start off and just give everyone a little background on yourself, that'd be great. Sure. Sure. Uh, I'm the CEO and founder of Potential to Reality Consulting, and that is a boutique kind of management consulting area that I started after retiring from uh, doing government consulting for uh, other firms. But also, I have a really uh, great and active interest in applying the art and technology and the tools of quality to be able to help societies be able to achieve excellence. Great, great. I saw that you got through a lot of Six Sigma, Lean Six Sigma training. How did that get started? What what introduced you to some of those topics and getting into some of the training? Well, it it started with my uh, journey in managing and and leading quality organ, uh, for organizations. I started out with uh, probably like a lot of us experiencing a really tough process that had a uh, a really dramatic impact on my life. There was a job that I had when I went from uh, the field to staff working with IBM. And it was a process where we had to manually rewrite letters to introduce a a service opportunity or service request uh, across the Southeastern region. And that was a process that was never ending. And uh, it just got me buried out. It was like literally those cartoon pictures, you know, where you have stacks of paper and somebody I worked day and night and weekends and I never got ahead. And so I, I realized that in order for me to survive, I had to fix this process because or else it was going to kill me or I had to quit one or the other. <laughs> so that's how I got involved in fixing processes and, and modernizing and making them more efficient and uh, developed through that and ending up being the head of service quality, uh, uh, customer loyalty, and skills uh, vitality for IBM Field Services, the global leader uh, around the uh, the 2000s, and then continued to do that and work in government and other areas, and then consulting with government, being able to help the uh, business processes and be able to get efficiency and effectiveness and help implement new tools to be able to deliver better government services. So it sounds like there's probably a lot of work that was service-based where it's looking yes. at paperwork and processes and not necessarily making things. Um, but how do, you, how do you help people understand or translate some of those principles into service well, where it's not quite as obvious or textbook examples that are in training materials? Well, you, you know, uh, w- the 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 language of it really translates across anything. Uh, when you're looking at lean and uh, six sigma, you're looking at reducing waste and being able to produce a uh, a repeatable expectation and managing the expectations of, or satisfying or exceeding the expectations of your clients and customers. And so that happens regardless of whether it's a product or a service. And uh, it also happens in regardless if it's done for profit or for other means that your stakeholders are applying you to, like government services or not-for-profit organizations. You're producing value for your stakeholders. 
And so therefore, the best way to produce value is to eliminate the waste that's getting in your way and then streamline so that all of your energy and resources are applied to producing the most value that you can in the time that you have available to deliver. Yeah, and I think the other aspect of that that can be challenging to start looking at government, it would be the um, the number of customers or stakeholders that you have to consider and think about. Um, can you talk to that a little bit about how do you try to capture and understand all those different stakeholders? Yeah, that that is probably the one of the most interesting things that you know that I came actually government service is uh, significantly uh, more complex than uh, for-profit business. For-profit business, you get to be able to have a really great indicator of your success, and that is the profitability of your uh, organization and the profitability of your service. But in government, you have a myriad of stakeholders, and they have lots of different interests. Uh, first of all, you have the citizen as the client of your services, and they have a value expectation for the benefit or the service that you're trying to, to deliver. Um, the second is the uh, political leaders that are enabling or are de designing uh, and funding the service that you're providing. They have, in addition to their, their meeting the needs of their clients, they also have their political needs and expectations about the, de the delivery of those services, whether that is making a difference for people or delivering efficiency and effectiveness and cost effectiveness in the way that you go about it. And then finally, uh, you, you have the, the uh, stakeholders of the deliverers of that service itself. Government service folks, the, a lot of times they get a lot of, of uh, uh, bad press, so to speak. But by and large, most of the people that I have met over the years that I've been involved working with government and government leaders, they are a very dedicated, fully engaged group of individuals that are really trying to go out and produce good. And so, matter of fact, that was one of the ways that I kind of uh, uh, look at quality overall my uh, Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt uh, trainer, Dr. Gregory Watson, defines quality as being the persistent pursuit of goodness tightly coupled with the relentless avoidance of badness. And so that's what you find government workers really trying to do is that they're really trying to do good uh, and avoid badness. Yeah, and they're kind of the, the heart of those processes because a lot of them are um, probably been there a while and have worked decades perhaps in those roles and working in government um, really has to be a commitment to that um, and that passion to say I want to work in a in a process that um, not where the profit is the driven motive there but it's uh, really about making things easier for the people and their neighbors and family and friends in the local community there, um, or nationally, if they're working on something uh, much larger than that, or at the state level. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, and a great example of that is the military. Um, you, you know, we have an all volunteer military in the in the United States. So people are deciding there may be some other motivations that they have secondary to it. But bottom line is that they're putting their life on the line to be able to produce 
the servant, the value of protection for this country. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, trying to define what you said earlier, the, the value uh, that you're providing there so that then you can identify the waste in that process. But yeah, it really starts with understanding the value. And that starts with knowing who you're trying to serve. Absolutely. Understanding their voice of what do they actually want. So, um, yeah, definitely a lot of challenges with that kind of processing, but um, the more more important need to have some of these tools and skills to be able to do that. Absolutely. And I've found that that government leaders uh, understand that and, and, and make significant investments in trying to ensure that their processes and systems are the best that they can provide. You spent some time with the Georgia Department of Human Resources. Um, can you talk a, a little bit about what the value was for that organization, what they're trying to provide if people aren't familiar with that? And then any projects or uh, big efforts you worked on to help improve those processes? Yeah, that that was another uh, fundamental mind shift change for me. And that also helps cement to me the value of government. The Department of Human Services, as it's called now, um, it was Department of Human Resources at that point in time, incorporates a lot of the programs and services that provide direct benefit to the most vulnerable citizens in the state. Uh, children that are at risk, elderly folks, the poor, the disabled, those that have uh, health challenges. The particular, the area that I was introduced to was the Department of Family and Children's Services. Um, and uh, it was a dramatic transformation that was required there. One of the things that I learned early at that time was that um, the, there's a, the process of child welfare, in which case you have dedicated caseworkers that engage with families that are in trouble and in crisis and have their uh, children, minor children that are at risk. And these professional caseworkers, social workers, have to make determinations of how to intervene and at the appropriate time to be able to uh, save those children and protect them from harm and abuse and neglect, and also try to maintain family stability. In the days that I was working with them and <clears throat> getting introduced, um, I was transferred over from the Georgia Technology Authority because there was a major effort underway to modernize their information technology system. Their system at that time was paper-based. And so caseworkers had to literally go around and write case information and keep it in massive files all around the areas of where they, they were working. And the, the casework and the child welfare job is so dramatic that it often burned caseworkers out. And they would have to, they would often transfer or, or quit uh, in, you know, in the dramatic fashions. And what I found out was that there were children that were literally dying because the information that a caseworker had put in paper was sitting on a file, in a file on a supervisor's desk that couldn't be gotten to in order uh, to intervene because the caseworker needed some extra help or had just fully just couldn't go on anymore. Uh, and so there were children that were dying about it. And so at that time they put in automated information technology software to make that work. 
But in order to do that, you can imagine how do you transfer a, uh, a process and a system that's paper-based into one that's information technology and computer-based. And so what we did in Georgia, and we were actually the national leaders at that time, that was back in the, the, uh, the early 2000s, um, we took off-the-shelf hardware. There were convertible laptops at that time that were, that were really unique that could use handwriting recognition. And so we automated the forms that those caseworkers used be able and put it into a, uh, gave them tablets and printers. So they were able to continue to do the work that they knew how to do with minimal disruption, but added information technology so that that information was readily available for the supervisors and others to be able to intervene whenever there was a special case. And that was a dramatic turnaround for me about the real value of the work that I did of how technology systems and process improvement can literally save lives. So the you're saying that they would actually continue to handwrite on the laptops or on the tablets that they were getting, and then that would convert into the system into Absolutely. Yeah, that was that was the process at that point in time. And that was and the idea was, is that uh, there were when one child dies, it's more is too much. But we realized that there was such a significant risk that we could not take a year to teach the caseworkers how to convert from doing their handwritten forms into typing. So we basically use technology to make that transition. And so they do, the, today they use systems that allow them to, and they're much better at using information technology tools, but that was a way that we use technology to minimize the time of adjustment and, and continue to save lives. Wow, yeah. There's always the uh, trying to figure out what to do. And then there's, can people embrace and accept the changes in that process when it's, especially the more dramatic of a difference it is? the more resistance Absolutely. there's going to be, even if they know, yes, it's probably better. Yes. I know the old way is clunky and we need to change, but I'm used to it and I've figured out my little system and now you want me to, to do something different. <laughs> Absolutely. The, a, a case in point was there was a director of one of the counties and, and in that process, I visited all 159 counties in Georgia and met their directors and talked with their staff about the change. And I met one of the counties that had a significant workload in the child welfare areas. And the director was one of those dedicated servants that had dedicated her life to uh, helping the needy and working with the government uh, to be able to do that. But she was an expert in the old way. And so when in her office, the director's office, she had rows and rows of, of uh, shelves that had all of the individual forms that the, uh, the processes for child welfare and, and, and the assistance, she knew every form and knew what it was and knew the, how to fill it out and everything. And so I was talking with her about getting her people to use uh, this new tool. And it was, it, it, she was receptive to it, but it was just a struggle for her to think about how that you were going to change from filling out these forms to actually using a tool to be able to get the work done. And that just was, that was an interesting uh, opportunity. 
Yeah, and and trying to identify some key people that you know, just like that woman, that would be really critical to helping them be on board with these changes. Because if if she was really resistant, then others that trust her and work with her will also say, "Well, maybe I should be more resistant too." So it almost kind of creates a, uh, a more difficult challenge of, of implementing these changes when you got these key people who are pushing back or resistant to it. Uh, so I think, you know, spending the time with her and really trying to get her comfortable with that is key, not only get her on board, but others who, you know, are looking to her as a leader or, a, um, you know, unofficial leader in the organization. So that if, if she's not on board, I don't know if I should be on board either. Absolutely. That, you know, and that brings up a key aspect of change management is that you really have to get a significant amount of those leaders, formal and informal, to be able to understand where you're going and embrace the change. Uh, because if you can't do that, then your change has very little success of succeeding. Right, right. A great improvement there. Any others that come to mind when um, your time there that you can share? Well, um, that that opportunity again was the the most dramatic, and that, and I learned a lot about government service, and also introducing change in a uh, an organization that had a uh, very static systems of processes, and so I did that in, and led that in several other places as a consultant, uh, working with government organizations. Uh, but also I had learned that prior to that working with IBM, and they had to transform their processes from dealing with large systems and the way that computers worked in the early uh, 90s, the prior to the transition into the 21st century, to the way that computers work now. And that was a major transition and a mind shift change for people that were used to dealing with technology uh, to be embraced new technology. And so that's one of the things that I learned is that change is difficult, regardless of what your background is. Uh, and there's some similar processes, but you have to understand where they are and be able to help show them a path to get to where they want to go, where the, where the future is. Yeah. <laughs> and I've worked with some, you know, other lean practitioners, Six Sigma practitioners who are change agents, you know, in the organization. And then you're talking to them about that. We have to change as consultants to adapt <laughs> to our customers and they don't like that. And they push back and it's like, you need to be the most open and, and uh, willing to change and you're very resistant to this change. And so you're just doing what you complain about with your clients and, and the people you're practicing with that you're trying to change them and they're resistant. You're doing the same thing. So yeah, you're right. Everybody is uh, uh, who's affected, you know, that's their natural reaction is to, is to push back or be hesitant and say, I don't know if we should do this. So that's a very you important know. skill. If you like this topic, please check out the Lean Six Sigma for Good book series with the subtitle Lessons from the Gemba. We have recently released volume two in paperback and ebook, and we will have the audiobook ready later in 2023. Volume one is already available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Within each volume, there are eight chapters written by different Lean Six Sigma practitioners who have applied their skills to nonprofits, NGOs, not for profit organizations, and government agencies. Proceeds from the book sales are split evenly and go to the nonprofit selected by each author. Go to LeanSixSigmaForGood.com or search Amazon for Lean Six Sigma For Good to find the book series. 
These books make a great gift for your process improvement team or someone you know who works at a not-for-profit organization. Yeah, this profession also is facing another immediate transition in looking at that technological disruptor of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, as you're probably well aware that so much of the work that we do has to deal with using statistics and being able to predict the output of a process or a system. Well, those new tools uh, make that process significantly easier and faster. That's what a lot of our people in our profession have spent their lifetimes developing those skills and those abilities. And so now we're facing a dilemma of what is the real value that we get out of quality? Is it making things better or is it being able to measure and demonstrate where things are in the process and predict where they're going to go? And how do we leverage those tools and that thinking into tomorrow's world um, where you may not have the visibility uh, into some of these processes? You can imagine like totally automated robotic systems and processes where an individual is not able to get in and inspect. They have, you know, uh, sensors and, and tools that are gathering the information and the computers can do the math to do the uh, statistical process control and adjust those systems along the way. So where does a quality expert fit in there? My contention is, is that that definition of quality, we have to go and look further and say, so what is the real value that this, that this process or system or production line is, that is providing? Uh, and while we may be able to do it with very, very minimal defect, a six sigma defect uh, reduction area, we really need to look at the value stream from a lean perspective and say, maybe this is really not something that's that valuable overall. Yeah. You know, trying to make sense of that information or data or know what data to study and look at or to help, you know, bring in the technology or AI into that system. But if that's not a value-added step and if that data is not very good, um, that that system or technology isn't going to help you because it's either going to show you how to optimize a process you shouldn't be doing at all, or it's going to give you misleading information because the data quality wasn't studied or looked at. And so now it's making bad choices or not optimal uh, decisions about what to do in that process. So. I think, yeah, kind of the surrounding part of what goes into um, the the technology and tools is really important to make sure that um, they're making the right, uh, yeah, the focusing in the right areas, I guess. Exactly. And that point that you brought up is the key uh, battle right now that's going on is how do you avoid bias and error uh, that is automated at the speed of computers? Uh, because if you got bad data, it just makes bad decisions really, really quickly. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Very true. Let's talk about the, your work with ASQ. How did you get involved with them? Um, you're working with them in the government division. What are some of the things that they're looking at or you're working on with them to, um, to look looking forward and, and where they want to end up at? Well, I've been a member of ASQ for uh, several decades, but uh, as I got more engaged in my work in helping government, then I got more focused in 
working with the government division and being able to help provide that value. And uh, ASQ overall is the largest uh, quality professional support organization uh, advocating both the uh, skills and the arts of quality management in the world. Uh, there's about 40,000 members globally right now. Uh, it's my honor right now to serve as the uh, treasurer on the executive council and then also to work with the government division in a couple of different areas. Uh, there's two main areas and centers that are, that are new uh, constructs and efforts that are in the government division. The first is called the Center for Quality Standards in Government. And uh, about uh, in 2021, prior to uh, a lot of years of work and effort, the ASQ government division working in uh, uh, with the American National uh, Standards Institute, ANSI, developed and published a new standard for the maturity, measuring and, and, and reporting the maturity of government services and process delivery. We call it the, the Government 1G1 standard. And uh, I was involved in working with that uh, uh, development team and then reviewing the final product. And then we have a, a uh, initial cohort of what we call designated examiners that is uh, to be able to uh, understand the standard and be able to help organizations objectively look at the maturity of their services and systems and processes to be able to say, what is the level of maturity from an objective standpoint using the, uh, the simple G1 standard as a yardstick? And so uh, I had an opportunity to work with the first two award winners, and that was the uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals Federal District in Washington, D.C. I was one of their internal consultants, and they were the very first uh, award-level recognition under the G1 standard. And then I also work with the uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, their National uh, Explosives Training Center, and their Field Response Unit that actually goes out and, and responds to uh, uh, explosives emergencies around the country. And that unit was certified as an award level uh, winner. And so I was their internal consultant. Another thing though, that I worked with uh, parallel to that and kind of uh, utilizing those same uh, internal processes and resources is that uh, in 2020, the uh, ASQ put a position paper out in support of using an international standard uh, ISO 54001 to support the quality of electoral organizations and electoral processes delivery. Um, ISO 54001 was developed by the Organization of American States and uh, the International Standards Institute, but um, it was not adopted by organizations in the United States. And that was because of the, the way that our elections are so distributed and the uh, response is so, uh, and the organization and rules are so scattered. Every state basically manages its own uh, laws around elections. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in regards to that position paper and the growing concern and, uh, and um, dissatisfaction with our electoral process, I work with a team of folks to create the ASQ Center for Electoral Quality and Integrity. And the idea there was to take 
that same uh, uh, processes that we learn from the G1 standard, the process maturity of looking at the operations and consistency of operations of those electoral organizations, coupled with the, the uh, amount of work that those electoral organizations have with understanding what their voters in their their district, their precincts and their state uh, feel is what does it mean to have a high quality election in my state? And so we're in the process of rolling that out, but I spent about three years helping to get it ready to go. And we're now getting, we just changed, uh, changed over. So I'm moving on to the advisory committee and, uh, but we're looking to work with other organizations to be able to put those arts and science of quality to be able to improve the uh, acceptance of elections in the United States and other democracies around the world. Yeah, just another example of a you know process that's so critical, right? If if people don't trust the election process, then you know it starts to break down some of the um, really fundamental pieces of of a government. And um, yeah, I think that's a very hot topic right now with. Um, and people challenging the processes. Hopefully this can help and, reassure people. And, and that's and that's really uh, true. And just like we talked about government employees before, my experience and my research in looking at uh, operations of government officials that run elections around the country, there are, you know, uh, sporadic uh, uh, instances of where there may be failures. But by and large, the U.S. elections, even though it's so distributed, uh, they perform their processes relative to the laws that they have very, very well. Uh, the, they deliver every election cycle uh, and keep track of millions of users of that system and uh, have very little fraud, waste, and abuse in the actual delivery of the processes. One of the areas, though, that I think that's where it's really fundamental that we change is that we really need to have the voice of the voter more reflective in those operations. Uh, there are open processes where people can come in and audit elections and you can be you can participate in it. Uh, I think what's going to make the difference is when the electoral systems and leaders begin to actually use those tools of quality to capture the voice of the customer and reflect it back on their performance against those uh, in their elections. And there are several states that, and several electoral organizations that are already doing that. I want to go back to that G1 a little bit, because you said that was part of this electoral process and also just general government services. Is that something people can read more about or dig into and kind of see what are the, um, you know, the expectations or the, um, key fundamentals that are expected for someone working in a government service? Um, is that something like published or it, how it would is. someone learn more? Okay. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, There's information available and there's, uh, uh, if you go to ASQ.org and uh, search under government, you'll be able to get information about what we're doing with uh, the ANSI G1 standard, ASQ ANSI G1 standard, and a value proposition of how uh, state, local, and federal government organizations can use it to be able to help improve or assess their current operations and then be able to set goals 
uh, of how they want to continuously improve, which is another uh, part of lean is to continue to seek perfection. And so um, th that is a, a concrete way to do it. There, you know, we're, we're working with also, uh, and you can see how it fits in with other quality management systems and standards like ISO 9000 or your Baldrige uh, type criteria. But the G1 standard is meant to be very concise and easy to understand and implementable at a, uh, a unit level all the way through the whole agency. And so uh, they can find that information again at ASQ.org. Or if you have some questions and you'd like to do it, just uh, contact me uh, at info at makingitreality.com. I'd be happy to refer anybody to that. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I'll, I'll dig up the link. I'll let you know if I can't find it. But yeah, I'll put that in the notes here for the for this podcast and I hope people can check that out. And I'm sure it, like a lot of things, it can be applicable for any kind of service, not just a government service, but service in, inside of a, you know, a company as well. Absolutely. You know, and that's one of the things, you know, we, we did it for government service. But when you look at the criteria, you can see quite readily how easy it is to apply to any particular service uh, uh, or system of services to be able to deliver value. And that would be a good yardstick to use, a simple yardstick to be able to allow you to understand where you are and make some adjustments and, and continue to improve as time goes on. Great. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Definitely check that out. So tell me a little bit about your consulting. Um, what made you, you, you retired and then you didn't want to stop working and still had a lot of value yeah. to provide. So when did you get this set up and what are you, who you're trying to work with and, and help out with? Well, as I mentioned, it's, it's a, a, a boutique firm. And one of the, the great opportunities about semi being semi-retired is I don't really have to worry about billable hours too awful much. I, I do intend to do well by doing good, uh, uh, but I don't have to uh, make sure that I keep my calendar filled up with engagements. So what I'm looking to do is I really want to work with organizations uh, in the government, commercial and not-for-profit that are really trying to make a significant difference uh, in their environment and the society and the stakeholders that they perform. Uh, not necessarily to maximize profitability, but to make a significant sustainable impact. And so if you're interested in doing that, I'm really uh, happy to try and help you out with doing that. I, uh, I work with medium, small, but also I work with parts of large organizations to be able to do it. Um, my consulting firm is uh, uh, kind of a, one of those new hybrid models where I have a lot of associates that we are similar in experience and capabilities and complementary in our focus. And so we group together to take on the, the uh, engagement uh, size and complexity uh, that's needed. Or uh, we are individuals, so we can be like a, a long-term retaining uh, relationship. And that's what a lot of us like to do is to continue to be involved with our clients uh, to help see them progress along their way from where they are so that they can achieve the their reality. That's matter of fact, that's the name of the firm, Potential to Reality Consulting, because that's what gives me my kicks is I like to see <laughs> people and organizations uh, go and bloom into what they can be. Yeah, and I think that's, what I like about this work too is that you know it's helping organizations, processes, and people 
um, transition to something that's better and easier and more enjoyable and hopefully has a big impact, a meaningful impact in society as well. It's not just a ability to make more profit. And, and it didn't really sink into me right away as I was doing this. I was really focusing on the data and the process stuff. And then as I've done this over the years, it's you realize that it's really that people side of it is is the rewarding part of this is seeing someone transition to a point where they're like, I get it. I understand this now. My work's easier or I really understand these tools and principles now. And um, I, I have a way of going from a problem and not feeling like there's nothing I can do about it to I have tools and skills now that I can work this process out of that difficulty um, into something better. And I like coming to work now than what I used to, or I'm not having to work hours and hours anymore. I can leave on time, you know, just little things like that are really the, the powerful part of this that I it didn't really sink in until, you know, later as my kind of step back and look, it's like, yeah, those are the great relationships and the, the development and transition you see in people is, is a really cool part. Absolutely. There's another person that I ran across and like to mention uh, his name is Tom Muscular, and he is in, in Wisconsin. He's farming now. But, but uh, during the, the early days, he got hooked in this quality profession and said, how can we use it in all kinds of different uh, arenas? And so he was able to bring in some of the quality gurus and figure out how can we make quality useful in the everyday lives and work of people in all kinds of different organizations. And that work uh, led him to lead ASQ at that time and also one of the early founders of the government division because he worked in the uh, government in Wisconsin, I believe it's in the city of Madison. And uh, they formed a new organization and they've written a book that was just released called Bending Granite. And so that made, you know, that, that term really struck me when we talked about his book and his work. Uh, that really is appropriate for the thinking about the things that uh, quality arts and science does. It allows you to bend the unbendable, take on those things that are monumental and make them useful and malleable to the people that are working with them to provide value. Their yeah. site, by the way, is called bendinggranite.org. .org. Okay. Yeah, I'll link to that as well so people can check that out. Anything else you wanted to share, Carrie, about uh, some of your past work or what you're working on now? Or what I'm hoping to do, and and again, I, I look forward to maybe maybe in a future opportunity learning some more about uh, the work that you're doing, being able to apply the principles of lean uh, to uh, our environment. That is one of the areas. It's, it's, and that's kind of the the thing that kind of gets me energized is how do we use our tools and knowledge to make a significant impact on the world around us today. There's no greater need. And in this summer, uh, I'm sure uh, uh, people around the world have finally got the reality of climate change, regardless of the cause, uh, climate change is real and has a significant impact. And so we as humans need to figure out how are we going to adapt and be able to help our environment support us uh, so that we can continue to exist in this one place that we got right now. We may not be able to make it to Mars or whatever fast enough. <laughs> so we may have to figure out how to make where we live right now better. Right. Um, 
<laughs> so I, I think that that's one area that I'm looking forward to. The other area that I'm looking forward to again, and I'm doing uh, work on is looking at that artificial intelligence machine learning. It is a tremendous opportunity for major disruptive technology uh, for good or ill. Uh, and so my focus is how do we maximize the goodness and minimize the badness of this new technology for all of society? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I just uh, last week talked with David Saunders, who's also part of ASQ, and he's really focusing on you know, quality and tying it to climate change. And, and so, yeah, I think there is that momentum starting where we're going to see more people saying, how can we bring these skills to every aspect of life, you know, especially things that have an impact on us directly or indirectly. But the goal is not to help the, the earth, right? It's going to be fine. It's us living on earth that are going to suffer through these heat waves and major storms and sea level rise and damage to our homes. It's really a people problem, right? It's how can we better handle what's what's coming down the line and can we slow that down a bit it's starting to become very evident even this quickly and i don't think people thought it would be noticeable as quickly as it has been so that's a little scary now is the time to make that change we have to go forward or, or else suffer the consequences of staying there and letting reality uh, happen to us very cool yeah so um so i've got your, your website making it reality.com and Info at makingreality.com is a way to get a hold of you. I saw you're on LinkedIn, so they I'll have a link to your LinkedIn profile so they can check out your background and anything else, any other ways they can connect with you? Just feel free to connect on any of those. Uh, and, and also, you know, if, if you're interested in looking at asq.org and getting engaged in this profession, be happy to, to, to connect you with a myriad of professionals that we have there's lots of people that know a lot of great things uh that are available to you there also one more thing did you is asq government services division does that also span internationally or is it primarily it a u.s based okay asq started out to be the american uh, society of quality and then we started doing things internationally but the government division does have international members and as do most of the uh the technical divisions have mm -hmm. international members and then we have also geographic uh sections some that are located in uh areas around the world so okay. you can uh, get engaged locally or regionally with your uh, section or if you have a particular topic area like environment, government, automotives, uh, health, medical devices, then you can uh, find a particular interest or technical section or technical division to be able to get aligned with. Yeah, I think I'm in the energy and environment division and then also yeah. Six Sigma division. I, I'm in Six Sigma, but I'm not in the energy. But one of the things that we're, we're beginning to have some connections between the government division and the energy and uh, environment division. Stay tuned for some work that will be working. There's some folks in the leadership of both divisions that are beginning to collaborate and see how can we look at governance and uh, environment to be able to produce good. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Okay, awesome. We'll wrap it up here, but really appreciate your time, Carrie, uh, for joining us and congrats on all the past work you've done. It sounds like you've got a lot of great work coming coming ahead 
for you as well. So um, hope people reach out and, and connect with you and and take advantage of some of your experience and and we can improve a lot of these government services and make uh, make our world a, a better place to live. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Look forward to connecting more in the future. All right. Great. Thanks. Are you interested in learning more about Lean and Six Sigma? Or are you looking to expand your existing skills to apply them to environmental impacts at your work or in the local community? Check out our free online course called Lean Six Sigma and the Environment on thinkific.com. We'll teach you about the Lean Forms of Waste and Waste Walks, which stands for Water, Air Emissions, Solid Waste, Toxins, and Energy. We'll go over examples of reducing electricity and solid waste, teach you how to involve your facilities and environment safety and health personnel. We'll provide guidance on how to green your 5S and Lean Kaizen events and many other tools specific to finding environmental opportunities. Learn more at LeanSixSigmaEnvironment.org.